from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. In general, the best kind of parents are warm and demanding. The best kind of bosses are warm and demanding. The best kind of teachers are warm and demanding. And it's one of the sad things for the kids at the bottom that people give up on being demanding. In Rhode Island, a student brought a plastic knife to his kindergarten class. He was planning on using it to cut his cookies. He was suspended. In Arizona, a 13-year-old student made a drawing that resembled a gun, though the student and his parents maintained it was actually a futuristic laser, still threatening, just not invented yet. For this, he was suspended. In Utah, a boy gave his cousin a cold pill prescribed to both students. And yes, he too was suspended. These disciplinary actions were the result of zero-tolerance policies. Zero-tolerance policies were created for good reason. They were a response by the educational system to the rise of violence and drug use in schools. But they were not perfect responses. The school system faced something new, something it wasn't quite designed to deal with. And when they responded, the result was far from perfect. Unknown town, and you don't think you could ever be found. Why? Because you need your treasure. From KZSU Stanford, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm your host, Micah Craddy. This week on the show, getting schooled, stories of the education system struggling and sometimes failing to adjust. Today's show is in three parts. First, in From the Schools to the Street, Molly Roberts looks at how some schools are responding to the increasing presence of gangs and how their policies are often backfiring. Second, in A Closed Gate, Britton Cayute and Richard Norte assess the progress of schools in fulfilling their educational mission while facing increasing numbers of minority students. And third, English lecturer Adam Johnson tells Lee Constantino a true story involving a bloody murder police detectives, and a fiction writing class. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. If you look to see if he resembles me and you wonder if it just might be No one should be surprised to hear that low-income urban areas have gang problems. They might not be reported enough, but gang-related crimes are visible on the streets. What might be surprising to some is where gangs start. Not in the streets, but in the schools. In our first story today, Molly Roberts looks at the role high schools are playing in helping, rather than hindering, gang activity. A local high school teacher describes the murder of one of her students. His name's Francisco Rodriguez, and the reason I'm saying his name is because he's dead. He died this summer, this past summer. Um, He was shot to death by a 14-year-old, Sorenio, in front of his apartment. Police officer Todd Hurst fills me in on the background. Well, it started off in the uh, beginning of summer, where we started having an insurgent um, or an uprise of uh, gang violence in Redwood City, as well as well as throughout the county of San Mateo. Uh, Redwood City specifically had two gang-related homicides. Um, the county was having uh, shootings, and throughout the entire county, there was homicides. Francisco was standing in front of his apartment, probably wearing red, the color of his gang. A 14-year-old member of the opposing gang jumped out of a nearby car, spotting the rival gang color. Dicks came out from both sides saying, if you're going to shoot somebody, you get out of the car, you look them in the eye and shoot them. Well, the last shootings that we started having in Redwood City were very specific and very much like that. Francisco hasn't been the only recent victim of gang violence in the area. Fifteen gang-related homicides occurred last year in East Palo Alto. 
Most recently, Officer Richard May was killed this January by East Palo Alto gang member Alberto Alvarez. The city has poured more money into catching gang members and putting them in prison. Officer Hurst. If a kid has made the choice to get into a fight over a color, to get into a fight because of where they live and not like someone because where they live, you know, that needs a little bit more um, power behind it. Gang membership is a complex issue. Single parent families, bad influences by the media, peer pressure, and poor households are only a few characteristics that have been shown to be related to kids joining gangs. But I decide to follow Francisco's probable path through the place society interacts most with gang members, but gang experts study the least. The school system. When did Francisco the high schooler, the middle schooler, the elementary schooler, become Francisco the gang member? Give me the fortune, keep the fame, said my man Lewis. I agreed to what he mean because we lived the truest lie. I asked him why we The classroom in high school is actually a breeding ground for gangs. Uh, you know, gangs don't really recruit on the street. Um, it isn't, you know, it isn't until they're 16 or 17 that they start dropping out and then they become full-time gangsters. But, um, but it starts in high school. I meet with Francisco's mentor and friend, a teacher from East Palo Alto. Let's call her Stacy. Stacy prefers to remain anonymous on the off chance my essay could threaten the trust she's built with her students, many of whom are gang members. She keeps looking around while I'm interviewing her, anxious one of her students will show up and their trust with her will be broken. It's a, it's a really weird dynamic for me as a, a white you know, woman to be now really pretty deeply involved with both sides of the gangs and um, I'm an insider basically because I'm not a policeman, I'm not a probation officer and even though I am an authority figure, I'm someone that they look at as, that can be trusted. Stacy teaches lower-level classes at a high school in East Palo Alto where gang violence runs rampant. Evidence shows that while gang fights and gang-related crimes occur outside of school, most are planned at school. Stacy says 70% of her kids have gang associations and up to 10% are full-time gang members. Gang divisions in San Mateo reflect gangs in the prison system where they divide along ethnic lines. Since the Bay Area has a large Latino population, most have ethnically Latino members. Latino gangs are divided into two main groupings in California, the Norteños, or Northern California Latinos, and the Sereños, or Southern California Latinos. Norteños wear red and tag or graffiti the number 14, while Sereños wear blue and tag 13. Both have subgroups depending on the neighborhood the gang member is from and they would either only use red pens, um, they might bring a red bandana, um, and they definitely tagged, you know, Norte and XIV and stuff like that. Francisco was part of LMG, or Little Mexican Gangsters, a Norteño gang in Redwood City. Before dropping out, he might have hung out on the Norteño side of campus, wore red shoelaces, and written in red pen. He probably also went to class with fellow gang members actually works out. I have never had two kids be of different, you know, a red and a blue. I've never had a red and a blue in the same class. And it's because all of the Sordenos are in ESL classes. The Nortenos are in the Sadai classes, which are the, like, the step before you become mainstreamed. Um, and then all of the regular classes, all the whites and everybody else <laughs> are in those classes. So. 65% of Latino kids in the Bay Area perform well below grade level academically. Schools in San Mateo ability track kids or put kids in classes based on test scores and behavior. This often leads to classes segregated by ethnicity with a large number of Latino students in remedial classes. It's so bad that even, especially for the Sureños at my, at my school, if they're in the class with the Sureños, then they start getting called Sureños, they start getting picked on. The Norteños will say, what do you claim, what do you claim? And these immigrants will be like, you know, nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. But after a while of being picked on or maybe even being jumped or being bullied, 
they eventually decide, well, why not? Because if I, if I do claim, then at least I have this whole group of people that are going to have my back. That's the mentality. You rockin' loud, but you ain't saying nothing. Francisco was ability tracked into lower level classes, and chances are Nortenos recruited him while he was sitting in math class. Surprised that gang recruitment occurs in lower level classrooms, I decided to look into the process of ability tracking. I talked to retired Stanford professor Sandy Dornbush, who hasn't studied gangs but is famous for his studies on ability tracking. We have a lot of tracking in schools in which you are putting the worst students together and the best students together. The best students are helped a little bit, and the worst students are hurt a lot. Accordingly, these kids are in classes where learning everything still isn't very much, so that their, their future is blocked. The future in terms of the courses they can take, the schools they can go to, the kinds of professions they could occupy. Dornbush says he can see how this makes gang recruitment easier. If these kids don't have alternatives, and if they're attracted to the low group, and if they're going to have much more contact with people of their, who are poor, which is often the case, who are minorities, which is often the case, there's going to be a kind of we feeling that makes recruitment easier, and a lack of contact with people in the wider society, which would make it easier for them to leave and move into more, what should I say, supportive environments that are likely to produce good results for them in the future. Once recruited into a gang, it's easy to imagine that Francisco's life in school was close to ending. School police officer Todd Hurst relates school policy towards gang members. You know, if you're going to act like a gang member, dress like a gang member, talk like a gang member, associate with gang members here at Sequoia High School, we're not going to want you. The school's not going to want you. The school has a very strong policy on that. After being expelled from school, many students choose simply not to enroll in another school and slip between the cracks of the public school system. Latino student dropout rates in San Mateo County are close to 40%, and many more are not reported. Recruited in the classroom around his freshman year, we can imagine that by the time Francisco was 16 or 17, he dropped out to become a full-time gang member. But high school wasn't the first time Francisco heard about gangs. We'll trace his path through middle school. By middle school, I mean, that's when they really start to make their, their delineation, those who are kind of, they get obsessed with the gang culture, the, the, the writing, the clothing, the language, the tagging. They write, they, they all assume nicknames, street names. Um, so that all starts to happen before they actually get into a gang. I mean, and pretty much once that starts to happen, it, it's happened, yeah. Alejandro Vilchez has been working in gang prevention for over a decade and now works with gangs at Peninsula Conflict Resolution Center in San Mateo. Vilchez knows gangs not only by working with them, but through his own school experience. Vilchez agrees that gang membership isn't just high school peer pressure. Francisco probably looked for his identity in gangs starting as early as middle school. I'll be straight up with you. I was the biggest wannabe there ever was. Um, I never shot anybody and never, well, I won't go into what else, what I didn't do or what I did. The main reason why people get into something is through, is for identity and acceptance. They, nobody gets into a gang to say, well, I'm going to be a killer. They get into it, they get jumped in because they want to be a part of something. That's the main reason. I generally worked with kids that it seemed nobody else wanted to work with. Um, which were usually the worst behavior cases, the worst attendance cases. Um, literally students who, I had a vice principal once ask me why I was bothering, you know, working with this one student. Experts studying gangs in Los Angeles have shown that middle school problems usually predate involvement with a gang. Gang members usually have worse self-concepts than those uninvolved in gangs. Francisco might have acted up in middle school, smoked weed, and picked fights in the halls. Teachers may have sent him to the principal's office or pushed him to the side. 
outworking of pushing some kid to the side because he's unruly and he's he's not acting like the other 15 kids should, you know, are, then that that one kid will do two things. One, I'm going to show you how, you think I'm unruly? I'm going to show you how unruly I could be instead of working with me. And two, I'm not going to let you know that I feel isolated, but I feel, but I do feel isolated. And since I don't want to feel isolated, I'm going to go hook up with kids who might be experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's from experience and and um, and also from what I've seen in the schools. Talking to Sandy Dornbush, I pieced together that Francisco's behavior problems, coupled with his eighth grade test scores, probably ability tracked him into the high school classroom the gangs recruited him in. Dornbush's studies show ability tracking is based on behavior of the student and a test he takes in eighth grade. So that if you had to say, what is the single best predictor? It's the eighth grade math test score. Do the kids know that it's important? Do their parents know that it matters? Do do they even know when it's being given? No. That is it. Now, once you're in, seldom do you get moved. Schools often make errors ability tracking kids, and once kids get tracked, there's little chance of them getting out. Dornbush describes a nearby Redwood City High School. By putting them so far behind in math, it was impossible for them to to fulfill the requirements of the state college system or the University of California system, and therefore there's no four-year public school that they could get into in the state of California. And they didn't know this. And sadly, when asked by the guy with me, Gardner, uh, they really wanted to be doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, you know, just the usual kinds of things, engineers. They had all sorts of of, uh, uh, aspirations and didn't know. They didn't know. It's easy to imagine that Francisco had behavior problems in middle school, so he was tracked into lower-level classes in both middle and high school. Lower-level classes are often taught by uncredentialed classroom aides and often neglected by the school system. These classes were not only the place gangs recruited Francisco, but also cut off his options for the future. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Gonna find you. But Francisco's middle school problems had to have started somewhere. For Francisco and other gang members like him, Stacy says she can point out future gang members in their elementary school classes. You can pinpoint them. I pinpointed them in third grade. I found out recently my third graders are now juniors, sophomores. They're sophomores. And I found out that the one for sure is, is a gang member. Sandy Dornbush stresses the importance of reading in keeping kids out of lower level classes. The big problem most of these kids have is they can hardly read. And that's because they give up. After about third grade, nobody spends any time trying to teach them to read. When these kids fail in school year after year, they reject the school system as the key to their future. Kids that haven't been doing well in elementary school their whole life, middle school, they get to high school, they finally say, you know, this is stupid. I'm never, I'm stupid. You know, I'm never going to be able to do this. Researchers have shown that poor academic performance is a predictor of gang violence. Recently, a study in Seattle followed kids from 5th to 12th grade to see what characteristics were most frequent in gang members. A learning disability and low academic achievement were two of the top predictors of gang membership. These kids were three times more likely to join a gang. Kids in East Palo Alto often come from geographically and linguistically isolated communities. Kindergarten may be one of the first times some kids encounter English. As a result, teachers become accustomed to thinking Latinos just can't do as well. Dornbush's research has shown that teachers are more likely to be warm with minority kids and that few teachers are demanding with minority kids. In general, the best kind of parents are warm and demanding. The best kind of bosses are warm and demanding. The best kind of teachers are warm and demanding. And it's one of the sad things for the kids at the bottom that people give up on being demanding. Francisco enters elementary school new to English. By third grade, he's only learned the alphabet. 
frustrated teachers with limited resources demand less of him, forget about him, and his education begins to slip through the cracks of the school system. By middle school, he's been told he's failing and starts acting up. He fails the 8th grade exam he doesn't know he's taking and gets tracked into a lower level high school class where teachers expect very little and he joins a gang for identity and protection. The school expels him and the next thing you know, he's in front of his apartment wearing red. As Stacy says, schools aren't doing enough. Uh, I'm disappointed with my school's lack of proactive intervention um, with the gang members, but there's such a small population of the large. There's such a small population and it's so easy to kick them out that I really feel like, you know, they... Prevention isn't really on the top of their list. Ability tracking is here to stay. But giving up on kids in lower level classes and not allowing them to progress is unforgivable. What we need is short term remediation. Short term in the sense that the kids must be caught early and effort and money should be put into helping them to catch up. So that, so that if a kid is having trouble learning to read, there'll be somebody working with that kid an hour or two every day in third grade. Not that this is a kid who is, comes into high school hardly able to read, and so he can't do the assignment. But instead, we wait until high school, where we set low expectations for lower-level students and discipline those who don't fit in by expelling them from school to the streets where they shoot and are shot at. A lot of immigrant children, not just Latinos, a lot of immigrant children become marginalized. And the clashes in the, the values of home and the values of the street or the school clash. And, and the young people are crying out, trying to figure out, who am I? What's that identity? What's, where am I accepted? And so I, I start hooking up with other dudes or, or homegirls that have the same experience. And, all of us, and then slap a label on me and we become a gang. Again, gang membership is a complex issue. But if we can pinpoint kids who are at risk to join a gang in third grade, and we have eight more years before they can drop out of the school system, we have time for prevention. Allocating resources to lower-level classes and making sure the system incorporates kids from disadvantaged backgrounds will not only keep kids out of gangs, but will also leave them with the ability to pursue their dreams. Molly Roberts is a senior at Stanford. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. In our next story... Richard Norte teams up with Britton Cayute to dig into why, after two decades of educational policies aimed at helping minorities experience success, these students are still being left behind. It was a painfully typical graduation. I marched slowly down the football fields with my classmates and took my assigned seat near the stage. It was hot, really hot, and I could barely hide the sweat that had begun to beat off my cap and soak through my gown. The crowd began to quiet down as the first speaker took the stage. The real world. We're all about to enter the real world. I think I first met our valedictorian in kindergarten. We had been in every class together ever since. As I glanced around at my classmates, I realized I had gone to school with many of these kids but for as long as I could remember. Everybody. It was kind of weird because in the block of rows behind us, I hardly knew one student. I is, See, I was a part of the highly gifted magnet school. It was a separate school within the normal North Hollywood High. 
The magnet school provided students on the college track with the best teachers and the most advanced classes. The magnet school all it's took all the so classes hard. together in a separate building from the regular school students, always taking every honors and AP course available. The separations became increasingly strange to me but as I continued to glance around. I couldn't help but notice that I was the only Latino sitting in the magnet section, especially since the Latinos made up most of the normal school sitting behind us. I couldn't listen to any of the other graduation speakers without feeling like they were only talking to my friends and I in the front. They talked about going to college, moving on, and even changing the world. But I knew that most of the Latino students sitting behind me came from poor families and would be staying here in LA to work low-paying jobs. As we were about to receive our diplomas, I couldn't help to think how unfair the system was. How could a school in a mostly Latino neighborhood have one Latino graduating with honors? It seemed like most of these kids never even had a chance. Should I blame this major discrepancy on the fact that North Hollywood High had a magnet school on the same campus? This school reserved the best teachers and the most advanced classes for gifted students. Access was literally denied to students in the normal school by the separation of the two programs. I wanted to talk to some students from both schools in order to see the differences. Yeah, so we had very little to do. Um, most of the teachers, no, some of the teachers really did care. Um, and they tended to push you a bit, but they were really discouraged by the system. You can tell. Um, there was other teachers who just didn't really care and they were just there for the paycheck. Ilder attended the normal school at North Hollywood High and remembers how difficult it was to excel. The uh, magnet students and non-magnet students were not allowed to take same classes. I remember I tried to get into a calculus class and they were like, I don't know how many periods you guys offered it, the magnet, the magnet school, but there wasn't really one for the regular students, even though there was, we were like 85% of the school. Um, so, and then I tried, but my counselor said that I couldn't. So we had to, like, me and another student had to try to get it another way. I never had any trouble getting into a higher level class. All I ever did was show up. Omer Sadat shares my experience. He transferred districts to a magnet school in San Jose with an international baccalaureate program, also known as the IB program, in order to have better access to good classes. My district high schools weren't that good, like didn't have too many AP classes and had problems with gangs. Omer also noticed the difference in the academic success of magnet and non-magnet students. There is a day and night difference, I would say. Like, the IB students for the most part either went to a four-year university or a two-year university, while the, uh, with the majority of the IB students actually going to four-year universities. But for the non-IB students, most of them would end up going either to technical school or a junior college. Even though Omer's IB program was in Northern California, it sounded a lot like my school at home. Not only were the students academically separated, but I remember them not even ever hanging out. A lot of times, magnet students, as I've noticed, did not really come outside to like the lunch area or anything, um, because they they had I guess they brought their own lunch, and they would stay in the classrooms, and whereas the regular students, which were probably like almost a hundred percent, were on the lunch program or the free lunch program, they would all go to the cafeteria and eat outside or whatever, so there was no interaction there either. Omer only knew a couple of students in the normal school. His only chance to mingle was in PE. Many students like Omer made the choice to attend the public school for the chance to socialize with a diverse crowd. Uh, like in the magnet program, the IB program, um, you had a lot of Caucasian students and a lot of Asian students. There were some Latino students, but not as, um, but they weren't represented in the same proportion as they were represented in the non-magnet program. Whereas in the non-magnet program, I'd say like 70% of the students were from the neighborhood, and the neighborhood is mostly Latino. I found this lack of diversity extremely ironic since magnet schools were originally started in the early 70s to desegregate students. So the idea was that by creating good magnet schools within high minority districts, 
one might be able to attract middle-class suburban students into the area. These kids would have to make a bargain, go to a poorer area to get a better education. This method sounds like it should naturally desegregate students, right? Why then did Ilder, Omer, and I all have the same experience with inequalities in our schools? I decided to do more research. So it turns out that magnet schools have actually done a lot in terms of desegregating students. One study by the Department of Education showed that in minority areas, one out of three magnet students are white. In white areas, almost half the magnet students are minorities. Magnet schools tend to do a much better job at integration than regular public schools. This has even prompted the federal government to increase funding to magnet schools over the years. In fact, President Bush's No Child Left Behind Act includes an entire section on supporting magnet schools. So if the problem is not the magnet, what is it? There's an important distinction to be made. My school was a gifted magnet school, not a normal magnet. Most magnets are subject-oriented like performing arts or science magnets. Gifted or accelerated magnets like my school, Omer's International Baccalaureate School, offer high-level courses in preparation for college. Gifted magnets often have entry requirements like IQ exams. Deborah Stipek, head of the Stanford School of Education, acknowledges the dynamics in schools with gifted programs. There's a group of kids who take a lot of AP courses. Um, and there's a group of kids who take no AP courses. And even though it's not a formal track, a lot of students will find that they are in all of their classes with the same group of students and rarely have kids who are not taking AP classes in their, in their classes. Um, so there's a kind of... It essentially turns into a tracking system, but it's more voluntary in some respects. It's not truly voluntary because if you don't get in on the ground, like take algebra, you know, at, in the right at the right time, then you can't take the AP geometry class, and then you can't take the AP. So you you essentially sort of get sorted fairly early on because a lot of these classes depend on what your earlier experience has been. Should we blame the middle schools for this inequity? How do middle schools prepare students to keep up with the college track in high school? Well, I went to a gifted middle school. My school was a part of the California Gifted and Talented Education Program, also known as GATE. That begins at the end of elementary school and continues all the way through high school. Kids at my middle school were given extra assignments in critical thinking, accelerated reading, and study skills. Each school district does it differently, but by 6th grade, most gifted students have been identified and are reserved the best teachers and the most advanced classes. The remaining students are often left stuck in overcrowded classrooms with apathetic teachers. I have a friend who is now at MIT and his parents didn't go to, uh, in fact, his parents didn't even finish 5th grade, but uh, he managed to get through the system. And he's telling me that his 8th grade English teacher would just take breaks during class, go outside, and smoke pot. I mean, you can't expect to teach students when you're high. Obviously, not all middle school teachers are smoking pot outside of class. But all the regular school students that I talked to said that they often had substitute teachers every other day, and they were more like babysitters than teachers. The schools couldn't afford to train them. The reality is, California schools are underfunded and overcrowded. I mean, California, I think, is 49th in the number of kids per counselor in the country. You know, we have very, very few counselors, and most of the counselors that are there spend most of their time dealing with discipline problems um, and don't have time to be proactive about making sure that kids are well-informed and the parents are well-informed and so on. Latinos make up half of California students. Why is it then that only one out of five gifted and talented students are Latino? The answer lies in the identification of these students in elementary school. I remember in second grade, I was given a standardized test to determine my level of 
giftedness. Since I scored above the 98th percentile, my parents are asked to fill out a survey and give written permission for the school to consider me for the gifted and talented program. My teacher started collecting my writing, my math, and even my drawings of Ninja Turtles. This information was sent to the Gifted and Talented Certification Committee, who eventually decided I was good enough. This procedure is repeated in school districts all over California. Once a student has been identified as gifted and talented, they remain as such until graduation from high school. This helps determine a student's eligibility to honors and AP classes, or even an acceptance to a gifted magnet school, like mine. Many Latino students aren't testing in the 90th percentile. Deborah Stipek attributes this to a language barrier and a lack of experience. It, it starts even before school. If you look at kids' skills when they enter kindergarten, kids from low-income families, um, and especially minority kids from low-income families, start school anywhere from a year to two years behind um, middle-class white kids. So, and that's entering kindergarten. There's a huge gap in their skills, and it, they don't—it it doesn't close. And um, there are many, many practices that we have that reinforce that gap, rather than help us close, close it. Of those students that do pass the exam, many have parents that are completely unaware of procedures needed to get their kids into the gifted program. Middle class parents are um, can often are more aggressive in making sure their kid gets the opportunities that are available, but they also have more resources. There are transportation issues. There's also just filling out forms, negotiating a bureaucracy, which can be very complicated, particularly for a parent um, who is not proficient in English. So there are all kinds of subtle obstacles that make it difficult. A study by the Center for Education Statistics showed that first-generation middle school students are much less likely to get on the track of accelerated classes than students with college-educated parents. This is especially true with many Latino students whose parents are immigrants and hardly graduated middle school, let alone college. Maureen Cox teaches third grade in the Latino neighborhood of Newport Mesa School District, where most families are under the poverty line. She realizes the difficulty many parents of her students have in supporting their children's education. In terms of the parents supporting their kids or trying to help with homework, I would say it leans more towards 80%. Although there comes a time for many of them that they, their language is inhibiting them from being able to help their child. So now... It's starting to make sense to me how I could be the only Latino student in my class that graduated with honors. The problem seems to start earlier than I could have ever imagined. So many of the students sitting behind me in graduation started out with small disadvantages. Differences that the school system had years and many numerous opportunities to fix. Instead, those 13 years are used to make their disadvantages worse, more noticeable, and even more discouraging. With Latinos becoming the majority population in California, Something has to change to help that 55% of Latino students who will not obtain a high school diploma. There are solutions, though. Organizations like the California Parent Teacher Association, as well as the Parent Institute for Quality Education, are working to increase the awareness among Latino parents about what they can do to put their children on the college track. The major exceptions to the school system that I know are students who remember one teacher in elementary school who went out of their way to put them on the track for success. For me, it was Miss Daisy, who walked my parents through tons of paperwork. Teachers have the responsibility to make sure that all their students and their students' parents are aware of their options. Maureen Cox doesn't think this is too much to ask. It is very feasible and very possible for me to keep a connection with these families and, uh, because this is a very doable number. After third grade, class sizes get bigger, teachers have less time and the ability to catch up fades away. But if first to third grade teachers could put extra effort into developing their students' skills and making parents aware of their children's options, all students might be closer to leaving high school with equal opportunities. Then maybe those students sitting behind me wouldn't feel cheated as they watch my friends and I stand up and take all the awards.
Britton Cayute and Richard Norte are recent Stanford graduates. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project on KZSU. Coming up, a bloody murder on an East Texas highway. Against the windows, the wind blows. She never thought the storm would get bad like this, though. More pain than anybody ever did know. With more love than anybody ever did show. Oh no, which way to go? And can I make it by myself? Better yet, can I just be somebody else? I'm all alone now. Is anyone left? I think I'm lost, knocking anybody out. All of the pain and the tears that have been trapped here for years. It filled her heart up with fear, made her feel like no one was near. When she needed a friend to call on in the end. And she's falling again, now she's gone with the wind. And it's all cause of him, and it's all cause of her. Now the light's getting dim, and her life's just a blur. And she refuses to live in the lies. So she kneels down at night, and she cries, and she cries. search for her father and at this point it seemed like she might as well not even bother so now she's grown and out on her own but still alone the pain still ain't gone she tries to hold on but the days get long and it's worse now than she's ever even known trapped in a place filled with hate and disgrace it's such a waste to see a little girl losing the faith the look in the face looks like she's losing the race but keeping the pace to live in this life without a trace of a loving embrace that she's needed so badly but sadly she walks away from it gladly Now everyone sees the pain in her eyes But nobody knows that at night she still cries Adam Johnson is a former Stegner Fellow and a lecturer in creative writing here at Stanford. He's the author of a novel called Parasites Like Us and a short story collection called Emporium. A few years ago, Adam was teaching writing in Louisiana and a student turned in a story that would change the way that he thought about what it meant to teach a creative writing workshop. I'd grown up in the suburbs in the West and there was the illusion of safety and stability and we had a kind of story that we told of ourselves about who we are and and what a shock it was to end up in Louisiana where, you know, all the stories were just blatantly tragic all around me. And I, it was such a head trip. And as a young rubbernecker and daydreamer and fiction writer, I was in a weird kind of, kind of heaven there. I was in a state with the most teen pregnancies, with the highest percentage of the adult population incarcerated, highest illiteracy. It was the most litigious. And then there were all these ones where they were lucky to escape, like most heart attacks because Wisconsin was number one. And there were this whole list of things that luckily only Mississippi was the worst at. So they were 49th in the union. And I would see people in the grocery store in South Louisiana and I would say, how's it going? And, you know, they would sit your ass down and they would tell you. They would tell you long tales of woe about their body problems and about cancer. Everyone seemed to talk about cancer. And I just kind of, I just reveled in all these stories. And I think, um, I think the main thing was that I didn't really understand that these were tragedies and that they were happening to real people. And like that was the goal of my writing was to understand and maybe um, say such things. To understand real people. To understand real people and at least try to fake real emotions like the ones I, I wasn't noticing around me. But I taught a, I taught a creative writing class. I was, I was very new and I kind of knew the basics, what point of view was and perspective. And I knew you started a new paragraph whenever you uh, had a new speaker in dialogue. And I had a class and it was interesting that a lot of my students had unbelievable, amazing stories to tell. I mean... This is a state where there were hunting accidents and car crashes and uh, I, uh, weird bankruptcies and corruption deals and everyone was interconnected. And I, um, I, I was just 
always encouraging my students to tell these amazing stories. They would come to me, they would say, Mr. Johnson, I don't know what to write for my short story, you know. By the way, I won't be in class Monday because my dad has his, um, you know, bail hearing and, you know, and I wrecked my car. I was always trying to get students to write about these things that mattered to them and to maybe look closely at what was around them. And weirdly, they didn't, they didn't judge these stories as objects of interest. And perhaps it was social, like maybe you didn't necessarily talk about this to strangers or record them in a formal way, or maybe you shouldn't look too closely at your stories. Here at Stanford, the biggest transgress, the great fear is, you know, being overstated. And they're always trying to understate things constantly. And subtlety is one of the highest marks of success. And so we're all trying to... I see my students write a lot of very quiet stories in which things may or may not have happened. Snow is falling. <laughs> exactly. Snow fell. And um, uh, so I, I try to encourage my students to use these stories around them. And I had this student, you know, I'll call him Ricky. I think he needs a last name for the story. Um, Ricky Stamper. I'll call him Ricky Stamper. Ricky Stamper, okay. Or I don't think that's too far from it, from his real name. And uh, he was kind of a quiet student. Uh, the, the school was close to the border of Texas, and he was one of the students who drove over from East Texas. And we all turned our stories in, and he turned in a story. It was very interesting. It was about... Um, a young man, and he's driving a pickup truck in East Texas. And in the story, he has a young woman with him who has a new dress on. And um, they're driving a truck. They're having a discussion about where they're going. But the story doesn't quite know where to start. It starts with them in the truck, and then it kind of backs up to that morning where maybe they're arguing, or maybe it's the morning before. And then it kind of backs up to some veiled incident that happened in the past. Um, but as they're talking and driving, he keeps thinking back to, to very vague, this vague argument that he's had. And it's not quite clear what's happened, but it's troubling him. And it keeps coming back. And there's a man in the story. There's a man in the story. And the girl's talking. And suddenly, there's a man on the side of the road in Texas. And um, I remember Ricky had a couple phrases he used. I'll never forget. One of them was, he said, out of the blues, he saw him. Out of the blues. Out of the blues. Not out of the blue. And I remember he said he saw a guy walking by a, a bow wire fence, B-O-W, instead of barbed wire. I never really asked Ricky about it. I never had a chance to. Suddenly he swerves the pickup to the side of the road. Ricky grabs something very quickly from under the seat that he's got, and the young woman with him is yelling, go, go, go. You, you can't tell whether she's saying, let's leave, let's get out of here, or get him, get him, you know. Um, outside of the truck, everything's really kind of a blur. Um, there's some, some things are yelled, but there's no dialogue tags. So you can't really say who's yelling what. And it, it's kind of not quite first person anymore. It's kind of third person suddenly. Um, there was a first person reference, and I, I, I yelled at him to do something, but, but my neck was pressed against the tailgate. And suddenly you realize they're in combat. And um, vague things happened. There are actions. We're in the passive voice. We're not sure the point of view. Suddenly, Ricky jumps back in his truck. He tries to put the stick shift in gear, but he can't because he has this thing in his hand. It's clearly a tire iron. And when he tries to let go of it, his hand won't let go. It's clenched into his hand. The woman in the truck yells at him to get rid of that thing because of her dress, which may or may not be a wedding dress, some, some people felt. And he throws it in the, out the window, and they drive away, and they start talking, and then the story ends abruptly. No sense of motivation or even what the action was. No. 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 In class, we, you know, the students really, really went after it. People were like, are they going to a wedding or not? Is this a relationship story? And people were like, did, did he get into a fight? You know, if so, I need to see the blood. And I want to know what he's thinking when he hits him with the tire iron. You know, I don't think it was a tire iron. I think that was an old friend, the one in the flashback. There was all this kind of conversation about, about what this story meant or might not mean. And, and Ricky the whole time was sitting there. And he was kind of a, a quiet, observant student, and he wasn't writing anything down, which is 
always a very bad sign as a teacher. It means he has other motivations than rewriting the story and making it its best possible story. And he was kind of um, withdrawn yet watchful about the whole process. Didn't make any strange signs. Afterwards, I think we ended up with some very banal advice. We should take the fight out. That's a different story. There are two stories, Ricky. That's always a sign I know I'm in trouble when we decide there are two stories in it. You know, we should maybe get in her perspective, and they should get where they're going, and whatever. Whatever the class decided, I, I kind of went with. And uh, we scheduled a, uh, a conference, and I, I remember I tried to talk to Ricky to kind of get a sense of what his experience of that class was. Your first workshop can, can be a little startling. He didn't show up for his workshop. And then he didn't really, you know, I think he came again once or twice, but he never participated, and then he disappeared. And uh, I just forgot about uh, Ricky, Ricky Stamper. And uh, I was in my office about a month later, and um, I had a very small little office. It wasn't a cubicle, but it was a very tiny office. Um, And I turned around, and there were two guys with ties on, and they introduced themselves as detectives from the state of Texas. And they asked me if I I knew Ricky Stamper. And I said, would this have to do with anyone getting beat to death by the side of the road with a tire iron in Texas? You said that to the detectives. Did you suspect something? Well, it suddenly just kind of came clear to me. And... um, and they just kind of lifted their eyebrows, and I knew I was right. And maybe something was troubling me about the degree to which I'd understood the story. Now I can see that that story has all the kind of hallmarks of a trauma narrative that can't find the place where the story begins. When a story revolves around trauma, where does it start? Does it start when the car crash happens? Does it start afterwards? Does it start in that morning when you forget to brush your teeth, when you got in a fight with a parent the week before? The actual center of it is vague and can't be looked at, especially without reliving the pain. And now I would, I would see um, all the marks of a very personal story. There's, there's something about the detail of being unable to let the tire iron go. It seems very authentic and very powerful and creepy. Couldn't, I don't think it could be faked. It's one yeah. of those things you wouldn't know unless you were there. Yeah. You know? One of the things I try to teach my students. Um, the story, you know, was seemed very bad as a short story, um, but also a little unnerving in a very genuine way. And so these two detectives raised their eyebrows, and they asked me a couple very banal questions, I thought. Did he ever do anything suspicious? Who did he hang out with? Did he ever come see you in your office hours? And I didn't really have anything to offer them. And I, but then I said, you know, he did write this short story that describes killing someone on the side of the road. And they were very interested in that. And I went to a file, and I just I had his story there, and I plucked it out. I handed it to them, and they seemed very excited about it. And they turned and they walked away. And in that moment, I kind of felt like, you know, an important cog in like a mysterious machine. You know, like this was a murder. And here I was, I played a critical role. I would have been like an interesting scene from the detective's point of view if it was put into a TV show. A law and order version yeah. of events, right? Yeah, I was kind of excited, like, hey, I was going to go tell other people about it. You won't believe what happened to me in my class, and uh-huh. this interesting thing happened. And, but as, as you know, time went by, I looked back on that moment and got a, a weird sense of dread about it that, you know, I had tried to make a class in which people could tell their stories. And here someone had done exactly what I had hoped for, and at great personal risk, and I had taken that story and used it against him in some way. You know, that was his story, not mine to give. And I think that that turned out to be like the antithesis of what I thought my, um, my credo should be as, as a teacher, not to give evidence <laughs> against the storytellers on the story. to stop and think about what I really believed in and what I was advocating for these people. And it was, it was larger than that. It was kind of like a welcome to Louisiana. You know, this isn't um, tourism. Sure, this is all interesting and fascinating, 
But um, it's not just something to be rubbernecked and saved as a good story. No, absolutely. I would imagine then maybe one of the reasons that the students didn't think to write about these things was that it was their life. They didn't come to their experience as a short story or they didn't experience their own suffering in that way. Or maybe they were afraid their teacher would use it against them in a court of law. <laughs> uh, and what, what happened to Ricky? Never heard from him again. Or back from the detectives? The detectives weren't into revealing anything to me. Uh, they just wanted to see if he had been a student, had he attended class, um, uh, what, could I point them toward anyone else? And the truth was that, that I couldn't. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about my student. You know, he hadn't come to my conference, which is usually when I kind of try to get to know someone. But it's just ask them to tell me a story that mattered, and they necessarily hadn't, hadn't mattered to me, at least at that point. And they took, but they took his story with them. They took his story with them, and I, I, I regret that because I wanted to read that and think about that story more, and about every time he came close to revealing something painful in that story, it moved sideways, it moved mm -hmm. backward, it kind of did a crab walk over here and there, and I, because suddenly it was real, or probably real, or had a chance of being real. I had an opportunity to learn about um, uh, something that truly mattered to the person and not just the story. Did it change the way that you approached teaching? Well, it was a wake-up call, I, I think mostly in that I, I understood that I was always after the ideal story the well-crafted piece, something that really rang and sang and had a thrumming effect for me. And I still enjoy stories like that that just show the master's hand at work. But now, especially as now that I'm a father, it's the stories built around risk and loss that break my heart. And I admire those stories, but those aren't the ones I'm trying to write anymore. I think I'm trying to maybe do what, what Ricky did. And I feel like I would rather write the story that Ricky wrote and fail than to write that kind of perfect story that makes you go, mmm, at the end, and then you kind of forget about. Because I've thought about his story many times yeah. over. It's an interesting, you know, someone comes in, really only has like, other than maybe reading a couple exercises, only has like one encounter with the class and tells this story I mean, I guess I'm assuming it's true. I, the detectives really kind of convinced me that, that someone had been killed and they believed Ricky had done it. And someone told the story of perhaps killing someone. Maybe it's easier to tell your story to a stranger. I got to say, you know, I have, um, I have thought about what those detectives made of that story. Mm -hmm. You know, because we were in a yeah. class that was centered on storytelling and applied all the skills we'd learned from our textbook and from the adv sage advice of their teacher um, to stories. But, of course, everything was based on the principle that this is all fiction. Right, right. Make of course. And so these detectives must have thought this was confession of some mm -hmm. sort. And, you know, maybe they read confessions regularly, and I'm sure they confessions could probably be as messy as the one that we read. Adam Johnson is a Jones and Marshall McCall lecturer Lee Constantino is the fiction editor for the Stanford Storytelling Project and a Ph.D. student in English. Today's program was produced by Jonah Williams and myself. It was engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Molly Roberts, Britton Cayute, Richard Norte, and Adam Johnson for their stories. Original music was performed by Zach Katagiri, Super Green Jellybean, and Taylor Merchinson. Their music can be found on Stanford iTunes. You also heard music by Kissing Johnny. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, 
the program in oral communication, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week, same place, same time, for our Valentine's Day show. Stories about who people love and when and how they knew they loved them. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy. 